This week on Miranda Warnings, we talked to Albany Law School professor Vin Bonventri about the new conservative majority on the Supreme Court, the three recent COVID gathering restriction cases, and what types of cases are likely to be heard during the upcoming Supreme Court term. The most obvious thing is that we had the iconic liberal justice, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, replaced with Amy Coney Barrett, who has a very socially, politically conservative record, very socially, politically conservative leanings. And in fact, there was a recent study that was done by the University of Virginia of her record while she was on the Seventh Circuit, and she was the most conservative uh, judge on that circuit. We also discuss Chief Justice John Roberts' role as the swing vote for both the liberal and conservative justices. And Professor Bonventry gives an assessment of the court's newest justice, Amy Coney Barrett. I'm Dave Miranda, past president of the New York State Bar Association and a partner at the intellectual property law firm of Heslin, Rothenberg, Farley, and Mercedi in Albany, New York. This is Miranda Warnings. You have the right to remain listening. Finn Bonventry is the Justice Robert H. Jackson Distinguished Professor of Law at Albany Law School. He's the publisher of NewYorkCourtWatcher.com, and he recently authored an article in a New York State Bar Journal about what the new SCOTUS conservative majority means for the cases that are coming before us. So, uh, Vin, I, it was a great article. You well, talk about what we had with uh, Justice Ginsburg and what we're getting now with uh, Amy Coney Barrett, uh, who replaced her. Tell, tell us a little bit about y- your thoughts on how this is going to change the Supreme Court. Well, of course, the most obvious thing is that we had the iconic liberal justice, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She passes away and she's replaced with Amy Coney Barrett, who has a very socially, politically conservative record, very socially, politically conservative leanings. And in fact, there was a recent study that was done by the University of Virginia of her Uh, record while she was on the Seventh Circuit, and she was the most conservative uh, judge on that circuit. And and remember, when we're talking about liberal and conservative in these judicial studies, we're we're not talking about whether somebody's a judicial activist or a strengthist or an originalist or a strict constructionist or any of that stuff which they, you know, profess. But then they rule the way their social and political leanings are. Anyway, we're talking about social and political issues, how you would expect somebody who's much more traditional to vote and somebody who's much more progressive to vote. And she's very conservative along those lines. Yeah, I I thought your article was really uh, insightful and enlightening, because when you talk about liberal or conservative, you say, no, these are just labels. But what they really are is a stream of tendency, which gives some coherence and direction to their overall records. And so you actually, you're not just saying they're liberal or conservative. You went out and and looked and and performed an empirical analysis of, uh, you know, cases that could, uh, would potentially be considered, you know, political cases on a political spectrum. And you looked at where Ginsburg fell on that over a course of 
years, and then you did the same thing with with Amy Coney Barrett. Right. Well, you know, uh, one of my favorite judges of all times, and just about everybody's uh, favorite or one of their favorites, Benjamin Cardozo, you know, and his nature of the judicial process, you know, he made it clear. Well, first of all, he was very, very candid. He was forthright. He was honest. He would never get through the Senate Judiciary Committee today because he made it clear. He says, you know, judge-made law is a given. And he also talks about the fact that most judges don't like to admit or are even aware of why they are ruling a particular way in these hot button cases. He says, but it's because of their own values, how they view a free society, how they view the constitution, how they view uh, what is best for the social welfare. He says, most judges don't like to talk about that. But what he said was, ultimately, if you study how a judge votes over a period of time, that you can determine, you could detect what motivates that judge, what that judge's political instincts are, political and social, economic, philosophical, religious values are. So that's what I've been doing. You know, Herman Pritchett from the University of Chicago many years ago started doing that with the uh, justices on the Supreme Court while FDR was president, and actually even before that. And that was pretty scandalous. You know, he started looking at their votes and calling them liberals and conservatives. Oh, how could you say that? They're so disrespectful. Well, now that's pretty traditional judicial scholarship. And so that's what I did. I didn't break any new ground. I just applied this traditional judicial scholarship uh, to Amy Coney Barrett. Yeah, so let's talk about that. So, you, I mean, you did a little bit in your article, you talked about uh, Justice uh, Ginsburg to see where we were. And, you know, in looking at her recent decisions, at least she was almost uh, 100% on the That's liberal right. side, like, right? I mean, almost That's 100%. That's right. Over, over the years, especially uh, the last decade or so, as the court was getting increasingly conservative, she became increasingly liberal. And you could see that in her opinions, many of which were dissents, where she showed how very upset she was by the direction of the court that the court was taking. In fact, many of her dissents were rather apocalyptic. You know, I mean, this is the end of this right, or this is the final dilution of this particular protection. Whether that's true or not, it did reveal how very, very concerned she was that the court were, was taking stands much, much less protect, protective of civil rights and civil liberties. And you mentioned in your, in your article that uh, looking at dissents yeah. uh, can provide some insight because it is uh, a window into what a judge considers to be particularly important and significant and of high principle that they're they're willing to say, look, we made this argument to the court. Uh, it, it wasn't uh, founded by the majority, but we still think we need to speak out about it. And you looked at the dissents right. of uh, now Justice Amy Coney Barrett uh, when she was on the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals and did an analysis of those. And, and, you know, it was very interesting. Tell us what you found when you looked at her dissents. Yeah, well, 
if I could back up a little, the reason why we do look at dissents is by and large because what the, the eminent former Court of Appeals Judge Hugh Jones said in his, his lecture, Cardozo lecture, cogitations on appellate decision making. When a judge dissents, don't forget, a judge is expending collegial capital because when the judge is issuing a dissenting opinion, he's telling the world, my colleagues are wrong. My colleagues are so wrong, I have to write a separate opinion. My colleagues are so wrong on an issue that is so important. It compels me to write. There's that. Then the other thing is, it's important to me, the dissenter, because there are lots of cases where all we just need is a rule to settle a rule. This isn't one of those cases. This is one of those cases which is extremely important. I want to be heard. So... When we look at dissenting opinions, we are looking at those issues which are extremely important to the dissenting writer and how that dissenting writer feels about those particular issues. So when we look at those, we're looking at opinions where a judge is really revealing the judge's own views of social, political, philosophical uh, questions. With regard to Amy Coney Barrett, a couple of things I found. Number one, with regard to criminal cases, criminal cases, she was in her dissents always, always against the suspect, the defendant at trial, or the inmate. On the other hand, there was one exception. You said, but you just told me all of them. No. There was one exception, and that had to do with a case involving gun rights. Gun rights of somebody who is a criminal felon, convicted criminal felon, who is now released and under both federal laws and state laws, that formerly convicted criminal felon is not allowed to possess a firearm. On that case, all of a sudden, she was in favor of the felon. And she was saying that the Second Amendment rights ought to override any of the state and federal concerns about a convicted felon possessing a firearm. So I thought that was really interesting and very revealing. And of course, in abortion cases, she she was part of dissents in two cases. And in both those cases, uh, it was pretty clear she was against the right to choose. Immigration, there was one immigration case. She was in dissent and she went on and on and on and on to support a Trump administration regulation, which was extraordinarily restrictive of the rights of immigration. So you get a sense for her, social political conservative. Right. Um, and so now she's she's on the, the Supreme Court, perhaps. Um, in some small part because of that dissent she wrote on the uh, in the immigration case could be could be um it certainly you know provided her with some notoriety um and now she's on the supreme court uh there were a couple of cases right that came before the supreme court during the term in november um there is a trilogy of covid related cases that show in my mind 
how the court has changed just in a matter of months in such a dramatic fashion um, that I think is, is certainly worthy of talking about. Obviously, you know, we have the states imposing restrictions on businesses and organizations, and including religious organizations. Um, and we've had this trilogy of cases uh, that uh, took place, one from from California, uh, one from, uh, the other one was, was from Nevada, and then most recently uh, involving New York. Um, let's talk about those cases, what they were like before Amy Coney Barrett came on the court and what those 5-4 decisions were like. Yes, there was the uh, case from California, which the court decided in May. There was a Nevada case, which the court decided in July. Both those cases, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was still alive, still a member of the court. Both those cases, the court went five to four. For conservatives, siding with the churches against the pandemic restrictions, the four liberals for more secular liberals, they were on the side of the governors of California and Nevada in upholding the pandemic restrictions. So it's four to four. And Chief Justice John Roberts sides with the liberals. And actually in the California case, he writes a separate concurring opinion explaining why. And he's, by and large, responding to the dissenters who were saying, why do we have these restrictions on uh, the churches, on church attendance, the limitations on church attendance, and requirements for social distancing, this, that, and the other. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts says, look, these kinds of policy considerations ought to be left up to the elected branches. What is necessary for the safety and the health of the citizens in those states? This is an extremely compelling reason to impose reasonable restrictions. Well, the interesting thing is, at least from the point of view of a geek like me, is that the, <laughs> is that the conservatives who are always talking about judicial restraint and deferring to the states or the other branches of government. No, they voted to overrule what the states had done. Not only that, they had chosen to engage in, oh, Lord forbid, in policy judgments. And they engaged in the policy judgment that these pandemic restrictions upon the churches were not necessary. Of course, they never do that, David, right? But they did it in this case in dissent. Right. Come and, November. Uh, and of course, right. Of course, Come Chief, November. And, and yeah. Chief, Ju Chief Ju Justice Roberts was the swing vote there. And his view was the court should not be second guessing the state governments that are trying to protect their people in the time of pandemic. He said this is really serious stuff. We're not health experts. Right. But the, the states. Right. They have health experts and they are issuing these restrictions on the basis of what they are being told by their safety experts. So we ought to allow them to do that. And not only that, he also went into, look, why there is a difference between congregating in church, where you pray 
you sing, you're probably close together, you're in there for an hour, as opposed to, you know, like your buddy Gorsuch was saying, well, you know, you're protecting liquor stores more. And uh, Chief Justice Roberts saying, look, you don't go into a liquor store and congregate and stay and sing and stay in there for an hour. Sometimes, so if, they have, sometimes if they have like the free tastings, you might. <laughs> you might, of course, <laughs> of course. So, but then comes November, right? And you have the case coming out of New York. Ruth Bader Ginsburg is gone. Amy Coney Barrett replaces her. Five to four decision again. You still have Roberts joining the remaining three liberals, but now you've got the five conservatives who don't even need Roberts. Roberts. And the, so, and the case in New York is very, almost directly on point with the two cases that we had that's in, right. in California and Nevada. Same situation where there were restrictions on, you know, religious gatherings in New York, it was, a, you know, 25 percent right. of capacity up to 100 or um, based upon, you know, Governor Cuomo's red and orange uh, designations that would apply to an entire geographic area, not just to uh, a, a religious facility. And that's the same thing that was going on in California yeah. and uh, Nevada before we have now established precedent of the Supreme Court that's only a few months old. Same issue comes before the Supreme Court again. The only difference is Ruth Bader Ginsburg is gone. That's Amy right. Coney Barrett is on the court. And the court basically overturns its precedent from a few months ago. Yes, in fact, uh, Gorsuch, in a rather nasty concurring opinion, he made it clear that in his view, they could completely forget about what Roberts had written previously in the pandemic restriction cases and say, yeah, that was just, uh, you know, that was just an order and that was, and now it's been overruled and, you know, it was one of those darn things. So it has no precedential yeah, value. Yeah, they, 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 you know, they imply that they, you know, they really, at the beginning of the pandemic, they really didn't have their bearings as to what was going on. And now suddenly, when you said before, you know, they weren't, you know, uh, healthcare uh, experts, now suddenly... They are. Right. Now, now I'm, um, again, as the judicial geek that I am, uh, I'm less concerned about who is more right, who is wiser, who is more foolish. Although as a citizen, of course, I'm very concerned. But, of course. I mean, as a judicial geek, I'm very interested in this notion of activism versus restraint, deferring to the states, engaging in policy, uh, and, you know, those who are always professing restraint and deference and not making policy, those were the ones who were exactly doing that in this case. Yeah, yeah I tell you what, what concerns me, though, is the fact that we had a precedent a few months ago that now just because we have a new person on the bench, uh, it changes. Uh, you know, uh, and, I, you know, you know that Chief Justice Roberts is a institutionalist and and cares very much about precedent um and now this you know this how could you not say that the supreme court is political when there's a political change on the bench and that changes the course of its decisions well david i don't know anybody in his right mind 
unless they just want to be blind about it, uh, doesn't understand that the Supreme Court is political. I mean, both in the Aristotelian sense that it's necessarily deciding issues of government power and individual rights and responsibilities and organization of government. Of course, it's doing that. But it's also political in the sense of the justices have to determine and they have their views about what makes sense in a free society, what a free society ought to allow and what it ought to prohibit. And despite what some of these justices say, almost all of them at the Senate Judiciary proceedings, the justices have to make these decisions. And in making these decisions, they are necessarily making law because I'm sorry, the language of the Constitution simply does not decide these questions. It doesn't decide these questions. We were just talking about the pandemic restrictions versus you know, freedom of religion, free exercise of religion. I say to my students, you need go no further than the First Amendment. The First Amendment says Congress shall make no law prohibiting the free exercise of religion. Let's start with that. It says Congress. So the president's allowed to, the, uh, the, uh, the courts are allowed to, the states? states are allowed to, okay, and then no law, none, not even prohibiting human sacrifice, uh, pedophilia, uh, genitalia mutilation. I mean, none of these things. I mean, come on. So if you were just to apply the very words of the First Amendment, right, which the conservatives are claiming to do, if they were to do that, first of all, it's only Congress. This was the state acting. And uh, with regard to no law, even the conservatives think that there should be some laws that religions may not, uh, in, you know, may not violate. Of course, that's the case. Right. Right. I, you know, I, I, I agree with you, certainly, that, the, you know, we have everyone brings to the table their own experience in politics. But it seems to me somewhat stunning that there's going to be a reversal of a decision in a matter of months. And, you know, thinking about Chief Justice Roberts, he's been critical of, uh, for example, when uh, this, the United States uh, Solicitor General comes to the Supreme Court and has yes. uh, a position of uh, the, their administration that's contrary to the, the position of the Solicitor General of a prior administration and has taken them to task uh, in oral argument that's, that says, you know, you know, what's the reason for this change? And, you know, my question now is, um, how can you criticize that when the Supreme Court, based upon new people coming in, is doing the exact same thing? Well, uh, that's absolutely true what you're saying. And with regard to the chief justice, he was particularly upset in two cases, one this past term, one the term before, where representatives of the Trump administration would come into court and in a very nice, professional, judicious way, Chief Justice Roberts accused them of lying. He says, you're coming into our court and you're making up reasons for why you want to get rid of DACA, deferred right. action and childhood arrivals. And you're making up reasons as to why 
as to why you want the citizenship question on the census form, because these are completely different reasons that are on the record. So we know that, you, that you're lying. You're not telling us the truth. He's very upset about that. Also, with regard to Chief Justice Roberts, with regard to the right to choose, he has been a stickler for stare decisis. Yes, he just because the membership of the court has changed, right? And Anthony Kennedy is gone. Doesn't mean that we suddenly ought to be deciding cases on the right to choose differently. He did the exact same thing with regard to certain death penalty cases and intellectual disability of death row inmates. He did the same thing, even though he had disagreed the first time around. He did the exact same thing with regard to the rights of same uh, sex couples. He did the same thing. He said, look, I was in dissent, but it's now the precedent. You know, so he's a he's a kind of a stickler for precedent. Yeah. And the other ones, not so much. So, <laughs> well, but let's not get carried away. Look, whether you're conservative or liberal, um, stare decisis isn't part of your absolute unqualified belief right. because no, of course thank god i mean thank god because our landmarks our landmarks decision by and large are decisions in which precedents were overruled the court refused right. to go along with starry decisis right brown versus board of education as opposed to plessy versus ferguson loving versus virginia against another case in alabama all the cases with regard to equality for women, they overruled a whole series of cases in which right. the Supreme Court ruled, oh, it's okay to bar women from law school. Oh, it's okay to bar women from the right to vote because of their gentler sex. You know. Well, let me ask you this, because so now we've got a, a new uh, Supreme Court term coming up. Um, th there seems to be certainly a willingness to reevaluate uh, precedents. Uh, under the new, what we have is essentially a 6-3 uh, conservative majority. I mean, uh, uh, Chief Justice Roberts, uh, is, as you indicated, uh, has a great respect for precedent. But still, um, you know, his leanings uh, are in on the conservative side. What can we expect to see? What kind of principles that we've come to understand can we expect to see uh, perhaps overturned in the, in, in the next term? Well, I think there are going to be gun restrictions that will likely be overturned by this new five-member uh, conservative majority, even without Roberts. Uh, there, there are several gun rights cases. One of them comes from New Jersey, and it, it looked as though uh, they were going to be granted certiorari. I don't know if that has happened yet, but New Jersey has a limitation on the size of firearm magazines, and that's being challenged as a violation of the Second Amendment. There are those cases dealing with same-sex couples on the one hand, their rights, and religious objectors on the other. So there's a, there's a case involving a florist who refuses to provide uh, arrangements for a same-sex uh, marriage. Uh, and that one is going to pit, on the one hand, anti-discrimination uh, laws of a state, but also Supreme Court precedents that you can't discriminate against same-sex couples. It's going to pit that against free exercise of religion. So that's a tough one. 
But we kind of know where the conservatives are going to go on that one. Abortion restrictions, I think you're going to see this new very uh, ideologically five-member conservative wing of the court. I think you're going to see them uphold many restrictions on the right to choose that would not have been upheld before. So we're going to see some real changes. So you mentioned, you know, uh, former Associate Justice Kennedy as being a swing vote uh, before when he left. Um, Chief Justice Roberts kind of moved into that, even though he is in the conservative side. He ended up being in the middle and really was a swing vote on on many uh, important political uh, uh, Supreme Court decisions. Now, as you said, you've we've got a, a six three conservative. If you if you move uh, Chief Justice Roberts even into you move him on the liberal side now it's it that's four. Who's the swing vote now? Kavanaugh, <laughs> Gorsuch. I think. Um, Who's the swing vote? I think Roberts still is the swing vote, and I'll tell you why. Because does he I, get two votes? I, Only if he gets two votes. Well, <laughs> well, well. All he needs to do is get one vote. If he's if well, if he's got his with the liberals, he just needs one vote. If one he more. Sides with the conservatives, he doesn't need to get anybody. So who's yeah right? So but who's the one liberal? Who's the one conservative that he's going to get? Well, I think he can get Kavanaugh quite a bit. I don't think Kavanaugh is as blindly ideological as I think some of the others are. And every once in a while, he might be able to get Gorsuch. Remember, Gorsuch is the one that wrote the decision saying that uh, the Civil Rights Law of 1964, which prohibited sex discrimination, also protects LGBTQ persons, right? And the reason for that is the argument by the liberals was pitched to him as an originalist argument. Like it had to be, if you look at what sex discrimination meant back then in 1964, the original meaning certainly would encompass, you keep your job if you're a man married to a woman, but you don't keep your job if you're a woman married to a woman. The only difference is sex, so it's sex discrimination. So they convinced Gorsuch, who in the past has not exactly been a friend of LGBTQ rights. They convince Gorsuch, and he writes the opinion for the court. So it's possible if you pitch the right argument to Gorsuch, you might be able to get him. Right. So uh, always fascinating, always very interesting. I've got a question for you that only you can answer. Oh, boy. Um, Oh, boy. So Dr. Fauci... Alicia Keys, John Bon Jovi, and your grandfather, Vincent, Ce- Vincent Sabella, walk into a bar. All right. Why are the four of them together? The four of them are together because <laughs> their, their heritage is all from a small town in Sicily, Shaka, the southwestern part of Sicily, this little town, Shaka, which was famous for hot, its hot springs like Saratoga which must be why my grandfather loved to go to Saratoga and take my mother but, uh, when, when she was young. And, uh, and anyway, that town, Shaka, well, my grandfather, Sabella, his family came from there. Alicia Key's mother's family came from there. John Bon Jovi's 
family came from there, and my grandpa Sabella. Bingo. And so Fauci. Fauci's family came from Shaka as well. So, and they're all having a reunion. <laughs> <laughs> In that mythical bar. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, uh, Van, it's always great talking to you. Uh, you're, you're one of our favorite guests. Thank um, you so much. As you know, we have a feature on Miranda Warnings, music, book, or movie, and you always grace us with a song. So maybe it could be an Alicia Keys song now. <laughs> I don't know if you want to sing, you know, John Bon Jovi for us or. Um, I don't think I can. I Grandpa Sabella, I can do, maybe you do one of his songs? I don't think I can do it, although I absolutely love Alicia Keys and John Bon Jovi. But uh, I'll, let me tell you, tell you this. And I knew this was coming, so of course I prepared. But <laughs> last week. Last week, I woke up singing this song. It was on my mind. It was, it was on my mind. And I told my wife, Catherine, I called her up and told her, she says, you're always singing that song to me. Well, my wife's name is Catherine. And oftentimes, I call her Katarina. Well, there are two songs I know of, Katarina. One of them is one of these impassioned Navalidan love songs, Corn Grata. Katari, Katari, well, Katari left this guy and he's going to commit suicide. You know, it's just terrible. On the other hand, there's this very, very lighthearted Perry Como song, mm. Katarina. Do you know that one, David? I, I know Perry Como. I don't know his son. <laughs> well, part of it goes like this. It's so, it's so great. Oh, how happy my heart would be if I knew that you loved just me. Say it's true, say you do, Katarina. Is that great? <laughs> Beautiful. Beautiful. You've brightened an otherwise cloudy day for us here on Miranda Warren. My apologies to Perry Como and his fans. <laughs> <laughs> Van, it's always great to see you. Thanks for your insights on the new court, and thanks for enlightening us with your melodious tones. Wonderful. Thank Thank you so much. I just love being here and talking to you. Thanks an awful lot. Since our recording with Professor Bonventry, the Supreme Court granted an emergency injunction in joining enforcement of California regulations prohibiting California churches from worshiping indoors. In South Bay United Pentecostal Church versus Gavin Newsom, a 6-3 decision with Justices Kagan, Breyer, and Sotomayor dissenting. The Supreme Court gave the go-ahead for California churches to resume indoor worship services. The churches in California cited the Supreme Court's November decision blocking enforcement of a New York executive order limiting attendance at worship services, saying this ruling was a seismic shift in COVID-19 jurisprudence. If you like Miranda Warnings, you have the right to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.